Hello friends, welcome. So glad you're here with me today. And you know what? First Lady Sarah Polk was no ordinary woman. And she wasn't just unusual for her time, she's still unusual by today's standards. And that makes her time as First Lady even more fascinating. So today, I'm going to give you five reasons why Sarah Polk is unique in the constellation of America's First Ladies. Let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. In 1839, a letter was sent from a man in Washington, D.C. to a woman in Nashville, Tennessee. The opening line was, I miss you more here than any living person and profit more by your information in regard to most things. What sounds like a love note was actually a sincere note of respect from a United States Supreme Court justice to his friend, Sarah, the wife of Tennessee Governor James Polk. One of Sarah's biographers describes her as a woman who managed the trick of excelling in the male sphere of politics without seeming to threaten anyone. Women would write that she was very impressive and made them feel at ease, and men were willing to tell Sarah things that they wouldn't tell other men. And so here's my reason number one. To borrow biographer Amy Greenberg's phrase, men were willing to tell Sarah things they wouldn't tell other men, and women felt she was impressive. To say that this is a difficult needle to thread in the modern era is an understatement, but imagine it in 19th century America, a time and place where gender roles were deeply entrenched. Women and children under the legal doctrine called coverture, which we learned about in the last episode, were the property of their husbands. Social culture in the 1800s dictated that a woman's highest calling was a life of homemaking and raising children. Sarah Polk was born Sarah Childress in 1803 to Elizabeth and Joel Childress, two early settlers in Tennessee. Joel Childress, through the work of enslaved labor, grew his prosperous plantation and gained notoriety by regularly inviting other settlers in the area to social events at their home. So how did Sarah get to be the woman that women admired and men would tell their secrets to? More on that later in the episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Forget six degrees of Kevin Bacon. If you really want to talk about a national celebrity who was connected to everyone in the South, you don't have to look any further than Old Hickory and Jackson. <laughs> Sarah's parents were no surprise. Close friends of Rachel and Andrew Jackson who lived nearby at their plantation called the Hermitage. Young Sarah likely grew up calling the future president Uncle Andrew. Sarah's brothers attended the school that would eventually become the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, while Sarah and her sister were sent to the region's most elite schools for girls. This served as useful preparation for a woman who would eventually become the keeper of men's secrets. While at college, Sarah's brother Anderson met a man named Jimmy. And so when Jimmy took a jab as the secretary of the Tennessee Senate, it was only natural that Sarah would be introduced to him. Andrew Jackson, again, he knows everyone in the South, it seems, told Jimmy that Sarah Childress would be an asset to him because she was wealthy, pretty, ambitious, and intelligent. Jimmy, of course, was future president James Polk. Few women of the time, even if the adjectives were deserved, would be described as ambitious and intelligent by other men. And it would be even more unusual for that to be understood as a compliment. There's some evidence that says that Sarah told Jimmy she would only marry him after he'd been elected to political office, which she did. They married at her family's plantation on New Year's Day in 1824. After they married, they relocated to James Polk's family property, where Sarah and James lived in a small cottage on the larger homestead. Living in this cottage on her in-law's property absolved her of the responsibility of entertaining. Her mother-in-law did that at the larger house. And this set her up for my reason number two, why Sarah was unique among first ladies. She didn't want to be a wife, mother, and homemaker. What she wanted was to be involved in politics. We know Sarah didn't want to be like other women because she wrote in a diary entry that if I should be so fortunate as to reach the White House, I will neither keep house nor make butter. You can see both this naked ambition and her lack of interest in what were considered the roles of women from an early time in her adulthood. Children were not part of Sarah and James's story. There's no historical evidence that suggests she was ever pregnant. So historians don't think she suffered from recurrent pregnancy loss, which was common at the time. What we do know is that James had surgery for a bladder issue as a child or a young adult, and it is quite possible that 
that surgery rendered him sterile. Also, side note, isn't it interesting that a fair number of America's early presidents had no biological children? Right? I mean, especially during a time when having a family was a societal expectation and other presidents like Tyler had huge numbers of children. Isn't that interesting? Washington, Madison, Jackson, and now Polk all had no biological children. I just find that interesting. It wasn't long, though, before the Polks took their next political step. James was sworn in to the United States House of Representatives in 1825. At that time, Congress met part-time, and when congressmen left home to go live in Washington, D.C. during sessions, it was not customary for their wives to join them. There was usually a home front to tend to and children to take care of, but not so for the Polks. And when James left Tennessee, Sarah anxiously joined him the following year. When elected officials came to the Capitol for congressional sessions, their living quarters were often at a boarding house and the Polks were no exception. Boarding houses were part fraternity, part hotel, and the cramped quarters encouraged social interactions, which Sarah used to her advantage. Boarding houses, by the way, also had the extra benefit of providing housekeeping services, so Sarah did not have to waste her precious time churning butter. We've already established she doesn't want to do the butter. The Polks were so successful in the boarding house social scene that they eventually moved to a larger boarding house location where they could have several rooms. This gave them more space to entertain. It was right on Pennsylvania Avenue, and the Supreme Court was actually meeting in part of the building, which gave Sarah access to the most powerful people in the judicial branch. Historians have remarked that Sarah's drawing room was always crowded and that she became famous friends with the wives of the Supreme Court justices. Of course, the Supreme Court later moved into its iconic building. It did not exist at the time. James's congressional office was run by Sarah. She handled his correspondence and scheduling, made sure that he got the right meetings with the right people, and James rose to be Speaker of the House. It was especially advantageous to both him, nicknamed Young Hickory, and President Andrew Jackson called Old Hickory. This political alliance would be long and fruitful. And Polk is now regarded by historians as being the last of the Jacksonian Democrats in office. Jackson and Polk wanted to keep these populist slave-owning principles in place in the South. And Jackson encouraged Polk to leave his high-profile position as Speaker of the House to run for governor of Tennessee, which both Sarah and James viewed as a step toward their shared broader political ambitions. When James was elected governor, the Polks left Washington and relocated to the newly constructed governor's mansion in Tennessee. Despite having the same address, this marked the first time since the beginning of their marriage that Sarah and James spent a great deal of time apart. While James traveled the state inspecting the growing cities of the region, Sarah remained at the state capitol, 
masterfully handling James's political affairs and keeping him informed of every piece of information she received. She regularly wrote him letters summarizing all the correspondence his office received, as well as any replies that she offered the inquirer. A letter to him on April 14, 1841, gives a great example of the system that they had. It reads in part, Dear Husband, I enclose you a communication given me this morning. The Whigs, I am told, are in a good deal of concern since the death of their president. They say in their articles that you are a wily and dangerous foe. So I think they will level all their articles against you. Sarah used her well-honed political talents to predict what her husband's opponents might do and to warn him in advance. Sarah was playing chess, and everyone knew it. And here's my third reason why Sarah was unlike any other first lady. She wanted to make a splash, but not in the let's throw an elegant ball, Julia Tyler kind of way, or in the save George Washington's painting, the British are burning down the White House, Dolly Madison kind of way. More like a more power for my husband means more power for me kind of way. When James Polk was elected president, Henry Clay's wife, remember, he beat Henry Clay in the presidential race. Clay's wife reportedly said, they will make a good president. They meaning James and Sarah. And so when the Polks were ready to move to the White House as president and first lady, they wanted everyone to know they had arrived. They decided to undertake an epic journey, and they wanted American citizens to know the Polks were coming. First, they traveled by coach to the Hermitage outside of Nashville so young Hickory could say goodbye to old Hickory. Then they hopped a new cedar boat and started heading up the Ohio River. As they passed by, crowds were said to have gathered on the banks with enthusiastic waves and cheers for the president-elect and his soon-to-be first lady. While they were traveling, a band came aboard the boat to play celebratory tunes. Sarah Polk stopped them immediately. For reasons I'll tell you about in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the words of Dwight Schrute, Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. But seriously, have you ever had somebody try to steal your credit card number and then try to make a bunch of fraudulent charges? That has happened to me on more than one occasion. If it's happened to you, you know it's a nightmare. Having your personal information on the internet is like giving strangers the key to your front door. Not good. And Delete Me can keep that door locked and your information safe. 
and I recently found a solution that is a service called Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information that you don't want online and they make sure that it stays off. It is a subscription service that finds your personal info on the web, searches all the databases, and then helps prevent identity theft by removing that information from all of these databases. So when you sign up, you tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted, and then their experts take it from there. They send you a report every month of like, we found your information in the following places and we removed it. More simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount just for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use promo code Sharon at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Sharon, promo code Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. As they journeyed, they stepped in a variety of cities to meet with callers and to thank them for their support. They ultimately used a variety of modes of transportation throughout their trip. The boat, a stagecoach through the Cumberland Gap, a train to Baltimore and then Washington, finally arriving in D.C. two weeks before Polk's March inauguration. The journey took between two and four weeks. And of course, we know the transportation was a lot slower then than it is now, but they could have gotten there much more quickly. They chose not to because they wanted as much fanfare as possible. Imagine a scenario in which a president-elect takes a three-week journey across the country before arriving in Washington, D.C., solely for the purpose of building up maximum hype for themselves. Imagine like a Trump's epic journey or a Biden's tour of America where they literally spend three weeks like on a boat, on a train, in a car, on a horse, just like trying to hype people up like, I'm almost there, only two more weeks. I mean, it seems, it seems silly, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> Seems silly by today's standards, but that's what they did. When Inauguration Day arrived, Sarah held in her hand a very special fan given to her as a gift from her beloved Jimmy. On one side of the elaborately painted fan was the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and on the other were the portraits of the first 11 presidents of the United States. It's actually a very beautiful fan. It's a remarkable fan. The fan still exists, by the way. You can easily find it online. If you Google Sarah Polk presidential fan, you'll be able to see pictures of it. The Smithsonian has it. The Polks did not just physically arrive in Washington. Sarah arrived socially While their many years in Congress helped them develop important relationships, Sarah knew that she was now a worldwide figure and that she should look the part. Her wardrobe would reflect the nature of her new job. Sarah is sometimes described as tall, but in reality, she was only 5'3". No doubt she cut an impressive figure for other reasons, the way she carried herself and the clothes and accessories she chose lent an air of importance. Sarah was widely described by the press all over the country and abroad as beautiful, handsome, exotic, and impressive. She had olive skin, dark ringlets of hair, and deep brown eyes. And she knew how to accentuate her coloring with rich jewel tones and gold silk dresses. She was instantly crowned the first lady of style in newspaper reports, and she made sure to never drop that facade. In 1847, for example, she reportedly ordered an assortment of dresses from Paris that cost today's equivalent of $12,600. That is a lot for some dresses, even by today's standards. Lisa Kathleen Grady, who is the director of the First Lady's Collection at the Smithsonian, described Sarah as a Washington trendsetter. She said, Sarah Polk's style was early Victorian, very feminine, with full skirts over petticoats and rich fabrics. She says, Victorian fashion was all about making women look smaller, so proportions would be more grandiose to make women look more petite. The waist and hands should appear small, with shoulders and hips very large. She says that Sarah was actually very, very thin, so her large dresses were a way of making her look like she was the correct size woman for the fashion of the day. Sarah knew which cuts of clothing suited her, and she had a dressmaker that custom-made clothes for her out of lighter fabrics for summer and brocades and velvets for winter. Her silhouette was tiny waist, huge skirt, details at the collarbone, and something for her hair. That was like Sarah's dress-up formula. She often wore turbans, Similar to her friend Dolly Madison, but instead of wearing them across her forehead like Dolly did, she wore them at the back of her head with her curls framing her face. And speaking of Dolly Madison, Dolly and Sarah were very close friends. And there's actually an important photograph of Sarah and Dolly together. It has Sarah and James Polk, future President James Buchanan, and Dolly Madison. 
and there's a few other people, probably Sarah's nieces, who were frequent White House guests. But because photography was new and special, having a picture made spoke to the status of all of the individuals in that image. They were important to each other. This was not just a like, who's that in the background? No, they were all standing there for a portrait. Sarah didn't want to have an inaugural ball for the same reason she wanted the band on the boat to stop playing. Which brings me to reason number four, why Sarah Polk was unlike any other first lady. Sarah did not believe in dancing or drinking or playing cards. She didn't believe in merriment on the Sabbath, which is why she didn't want the band to play. She was very piously religious in a way that no first lady had really been before. We mentioned in our previous episode, Women versus Whiskey, that Americans in the early 19th century drank three times as much as people do today. But not Sarah. Sarah didn't allow spirits in the White House. Wine or beer only, and only for exceptional occasions, like entertaining heads of state from overseas where drinking was potentially important for American foreign policy. So when Sarah thought an inaugural ball was a bad idea, because it had lots of dancing and drinking, Dolly Madison advised her against it. Dolly told her it would be politically expedient for her to have the party, and instead of dancing, she could use the time to talk to Washington's important men. Sarah heeded the advice. She earned the nicknames The Puritan from Tennessee and Sahara Sarah, both references to her rule-bound ways. In fact, once when a government official from Austria sailed across the ocean and arrived a day early on a Sunday, Sarah refused to receive him at the White House until the Sabbath had passed. Sarah and two A. Lesser St. James were Calvinist Presbyterians. Without going into a full history of Calvinism, which would take an entire podcast, it's important to note that one of the movement's most influential leaders, John Calvin, strongly preached the notion of predestination, that even before creation, God decided who he would save. Another important tenet of Calvinism is called the perseverance of the saints. And it's an idea that says because God is sovereign in all things— His will cannot be subverted by humans or anyone else. According to Sarah's beliefs, because God is sovereign in all things and had already elected who he would save, enslaving people was not problematic. It was part of what she believed was God's plan. Both Sarah and James were from well-off families that enslaved others. And when they married, Sarah's dowry included 10 enslaved people. During their marriage, their slaveholdings grew to over 50 people by the time of James's inauguration, and they brought some of their enslaved people to the White House. This led to a dismissal of some of the White House staff because the workers were replaced with free forced labor. This belief carried over into the justification of removing Native American tribes from their ancestral lands in the South to more Western territory. Sarah similarly shared Polk's and Jackson's views of manifest destiny, the idea that it was part of a larger ordained plan that the United States should extend its borders 
all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Regaining Texas for the United States was Polk's biggest campaign platform, and it even helped him win the presidency. In an upcoming episode, we will take a closer look at the Mexican-American War and how this led to continental expansion. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As the abolitionist movement began to rise in America, Sarah and James stayed staunch in their belief that because God's will could not be subverted, it was his divine will that said people should be enslaved. They continued to buy and sell slaves when they were in the White House, with James even once touting in a speech his virtue for being invested in keeping enslaved families together. As an investment, the Polks purchased a plantation in Mississippi, and conditions were so terrible there for the people they enslaved that while Polk was in office, while he was president, the yearly mortality rate of the people he owned at the Mississippi plantation was nearly 50%. Nearly half of his enslaved people died. And this brings us to reason number five, which is related to reason number one, Sarah had an intuitive tact and political wisdom that was uncommon for any person of that time. 
Whenever she shared a thought, opinion, or suggestion, it was always prefaced with Mr. Polk thinks or Mr. Polk believes. And she quickly learned that she could do and say anything she wanted as long as it was on behalf of her husband. She was a good conversationalist, and perhaps her religious piety made people feel like she was trustworthy. Sarah was a popular first lady, which was fortunate, given that her husband was pretty unpopular as president. Historian Amy Greenberg wrote that Mrs. Polk cultivated a deferential persona that powerful men found non-threatening and intoxicating. She was a woman who venerated the work of men and excelled in it because she publicly embraced a reactionary standard of female submission. So by brilliantly manipulating the gender codes of the day, Sarah Polk exercised a political power that a narrative of women's rights would tell you no woman had until they actually won the vote. Future Commander-in-Chief Franklin Pierce even wrote to some of his friends that I would rather talk with Mrs. Polk about all manner of duties than I would with her husband. Sarah acted as her husband's de facto chief of staff, press secretary, and communications director because, again, as we previously established, she was not interested in making butter. (laughs) In fact, Sarah was so caught up in politics that she rarely cared about the details of being a White House hostess. At one state dinner, she was so anxious to speak with the political minds there that she didn't notice a lack of napkins on the table, and she frankly did not even seem to care when someone pointed it out. She wanted power for herself and her husband, but didn't seem to be interested in helping other people access power. For example, she supported the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the anti-alcohol group that we talked about in our previous episode, but not women's suffrage. James made a promise when he was elected that he would be a one-term president, and he stuck to his word. When the Polk's time in the White House ended in 1849, they embarked on a tour of the South. Cholera was raging throughout the southern cities, and since he was already in poor health, James easily contracted the disease. Sarah and James ended their tour by arriving at their newly remodeled home in Nashville, which they named Polk Place. But James never fully recovered from the cholera. Only 103 days after leaving the White House, Jimmy Polk died on the afternoon of June 15th, 1849. His last words were reportedly, I love you, Sarah. For all eternity, I love you. Sarah, who was deeply mourning her beloved husband, spent the next 40 years living out her life at Polk Place. She rarely left the home, but constantly entertained visitors there. When the Civil War began, Polk Place was considered neutral, and Sarah welcomed both Union and Confederate visitors. But when she was asked to sign an oath of loyalty to the Union, as was required of all Nashville residents, she refused. She would later admit that her sympathies were actually with the South, and she blamed the divisions within the Democratic Party during the 1860 election for the outbreak of war. In the later decades of her life, she welcomed both presidents 
Hayes and Cleveland to her home along with their wives. She never stopped delighting in the political banter she so excelled at, and that was hard to come by for a widow. In a nod to her intellect and curiosity, Sarah was always interested in new technology, and she made sure to have both a telegraph and a telephone installed in her home as soon as they were available. For a period of time, Sarah's great-niece, who was also named Sarah, lived with her. Her great-niece, Sarah, got married at Polk Place, and when the older Sarah died in 1891 at the age of 87, she was buried next to her beloved husband. She had lived without him for 42 years, the longest widowhood of any first lady. After she died, Sarah left Polk Place to her niece, but eventually other Polk relatives began to dispute Sarah's will in the courts. The relatives claimed that it was President Polk's will that should be allowed, not Sarah's, which speaks to the idea I mentioned previously that women had few legal rights absent their husband. James Polk's nephew felt he should have possession of the grand property, not Sarah's great niece, Sarah. In the president's will, He stated that his home should be run like the Jackson's Hermitage as a perpetual monument to his career. Eventually, the familial infighting meant that a judge ordered that the property be sold. And the now dead Sarah and James had to be relocated. Eventually, the home was sold to a developer who tore it down to build an apartment building. The building has changed hands many times over the decades, and for a long time it was a YMCA. But it is now the small, relatively unremarkable, Capitol Hotel on Union Street. Sarah Childress Polk was a political force because she was so good at seeming not to be. Thank you for being here today. Join us next time when we talk about one of my favorite 19th century people, Frederick Douglass. I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider sharing it on social media or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform? All those things help podcasters out so much. The show is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson, Valerie Hoback, and Sharon McMahon. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder, and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. We'll see you again soon.